it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening. Everybody that filled in last week. It's an exciting, important time because we have to find out what's happening uh, in the Ukraine and find out if one of the world's biggest villains is finally going to meet his demise. And that is Vladimir Putin. My fingers are crossed. But so far, it's perilous times over in the Ukraine. We'll talk about it with Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He's going for six more years in the Senate. He's got some new legislation, and we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk to Barry Pavel. He served as Special Assistant for Defensive Policies and Strategies on the National Security Council for George W. Bush and Barack Obama. So we don't want to talk politics. We want to talk about uh, the survival of the Ukraine. Also, special thanks to Key to a brand-new um, um, affiliate, we're privileged to have in our expanding family, WHLOAM, Akron, Ohio. Akron's News Talk 640, uh, WHLO. Welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy uh, the ride. So let's get started with the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He's out at his compound, doesn't come into town very much. He's increasingly unhinged. He seems uh, erratic. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. That is uh, Condoleezza Rice, that last clip. But what is it about Vladimir Putin? Is he crazy like a fox or just crazy? The Western leaders who know him best feel he has lost it and is a different man. What are the options and who exactly is left where he can call a, who he can call a friend? Is it even China? Number two. The fact that the sanctions have all of these loopholes is a big problem. What are we doing on the Russian Central Bank? What are we going to supply to the Ukrainians in order to support them? None of those questions have been answered. Daniel Pletko weighing in on Meet the Press. The world responds in a massive way, but is it enough? And Russia's already feeling the financial pain. I'll get into detail. More importantly, so that the people of Russia are feeling the pain, the ruble is turning to rubble. Number one. Satellite images, they show a convoy that's more than three miles long of Russian trucks and artillery units headed toward the Ukrainian capital. This is significant because the concern amid the backdrop of possible negotiations succeeding is that the Russians would increase the amount they are shelling cities across this country. And that is Trey Yanks doing a great job. Russia versus the Ukraine, the latest from the battlefield as three small cities fall, Ukraine stands strong. So what uh, Trey was referring to was what's happening in Kiev. There's a convoy 3.5 miles long that's getting closer to the city. They say it's within five miles of the city. Why is that significant? Because so far they've been trying to take Kiev for the last four days, and they've been unsuccessful. In fact, there's reports that they don't even get out of the car. These transport vehicles go through. They're either blown up or set back. So another day they last, and they and every day they last – they win, although it's getting harder and harder to get supplies in, to get weapons in, and people like Mayor Klitschko, quite worried. President uh, uh, Zelny, quite worried. 
uh, Zavelny quite worried, obviously, and they're hoping for more help, and they're getting help, but it, will it be enough? All hands on deck. Now we hear that Belarus is going to start using their troops to help Russia out. How pathetic. They got 190,000 troops going against 100,000 combined Ukrainian troops. These guys have been there for six months, and they need Belarus to help them out, and the people of Belarus want nothing to do with it. It's just their leader that sold out to keep his power, Lushenko, who would do that. That's pathetic. But I fear they're going for a scorched earth. They're going just, the things that we were condemned for doing, when it happened by accident, they're going to be doing it intentionally. And that is just carpet bombing cities like we did in Berlin in World War II. What is at stake? Well, so far, Vladimir Putin has put together the worst battle plan you could imagine, trying to hit from four sides, didn't even have plans in place to resupply his fighting machine, as well as his people, as well as the machines themselves, like with gas and oil. Rumor is they, they rusted out a lot of it. So, so far, there's uh, three small cities that have fallen, and the number two city, Kharkiv, is under a thick attack right now as we speak. But so far, it's been something that has gained the Ukraine's performance has gained the respect of the entire world. Outside Brazil, who's standing on the side, outside China, for the most part, is leaning Russia, but is not speaking out in support of Russia. Even Turkey is going to enact a doctrine between Turkey and the Ukraine that would have them limit the number of ships going through the Black Sea. So even Turkey sees the error and folly of Vladimir Putin's ways. Here's Oksana Markova. She's a Ukrainian ambassador. Cut one. First of all, we have to understand here that neither NATO nor any other false pretest or lies that Russian Federation government is spreading is the real reason why they attacked us. They attacked us because they always wanted to destroy us, because free, democratic and sovereign Ukraine is a threat to them. We are a peaceful country, we never attack them, but they cannot allow us to be independent and just to live our own lives. That's why they attacked us in 2014. That's why for the past eight years they've done everything to pressure us into into this, and that's why now they started the war. They did, and they started a war, and everyone sees it. There was no reason for it. They're telling the people that Ukraine is run by Nazis. Really? The guy's Jewish. Number two is that they're a bunch of drug addicts. Where does that come from? What is this, some schoolyard bully uh, playtime? Drug addicts and Nazis? By the sec- only the one of two Jewish leaders in the world? And everybody knows Ukraine. In Russia, everyone knows a Ukrainian or as a relative who is Ukrainian and vice versa. They know they've done nothing. They want to be a European country. They don't want any part of Russia. Vladimir Putin just was on television for 90 minutes talking about how even Lenin made a mistake in letting Ukraine be its own country and that Gorbachev obviously was part of the big problem that let them be their own country. And now they want to retain their own country. They're still losing men are the Russians in the Donbass region where the Ukrainians have lost 14,000 over the last four years since 2014. And Crimea, they're still not willing to give that back. They're still fighting to keep that to a degree let alone these other regions. We'll give you the latest. We'll bring it to the battlefield. When we come back, I'm going to examine the mental health of Vladimir Putin, who by all reports, he's been very isolated uh, really since 2019 when COVID hit. Uh, The big tough guy, very paranoid about getting it. 
When we come back, we'll look at that as well as the sanctions with Barry Pavel, who has uh, rich credentials as a key advisor to both Bush and Obama, then Ron Johnson. A lot to talk about, and we will get your calls, one 408 7669 right after this. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform. And watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. He's not been in the Kremlin for the most part. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He doesn't look very powerful. And this is going to jeopardize his ability to stay in power. That word rational actor is a very elastic, right? He's out at his compound doesn't come into town very much, and under COVID, he's been more isolated. He's increasingly unhinged in the way that he talks about the regime. Well, I met with him many times, uh, and uh, this is a different Putin. He seems uh, erratic. There is uh, an ever-deepening delusional rendering of history. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. That is former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. You probably recognize the voices. Just know the other voices are not of politicians. They're of people that have had some contact with him and can't quite figure out why this guy is acting the way he is. Because you, you could be evil, but you could also be smart. This guy definitely is a, a, a demonic personality, but he's never been less than calculated. I would say to be kind, he's less than calculated. What's the reality, according to Barry Pavel? He served as a special assistant for defense policy and strategy on the National Security Council for Presidents George W. Bush and President Obama. Uh, Barry, welcome. Where do you weigh in on what you've seen so far about Putin's behavior? Well, thanks a lot. I I think uh, for many years he was sort of uh, calculating and somewhat strategic, even if risk-taking. And so I think you see, go back to the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the Crimea, sort of little green med men kind of pseudo invasion and occupation, um, f- further invasion to the Donbass uh, later that year. Uh, but I think I take uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates's cue in terms of this year, and, and he said yesterday that he thinks he's gone off the rails. Uh, I, I think that's true, too. I think his decision-making process is very uninformed. I think just like most dictators, his advisors are, you know, scared into saying what they think the boss wants to hear. Uh, you've seen videos of those sessions kind of chilling last week where he was cutting off and intimidating his, his head of intelligence uh, across a, a very large room. Uh, he's been isolated because of COVID. And so um, I, I think it's really, um, you know, anything could happen because he is not getting good information. He has an increasingly small circle of advisors, uh, and he's not. And, and it's just not something that um, I think we have to expect as a as a rational 
decision maker going forward. So we have to be careful, keep doing what we're doing, but I think we have to be uh, quite agile. Uh, in terms of how to handle what he might do next. I hear you. So, so Barry, let's look at it from his perspective. All right, I went into Georgia, a little blowback, first time it's been, it's been an invasion of territory, really, since World War II, not respecting their borders. But they said, Shashkavili is such a hothead, he baited him into it. So somehow yes, they were allowed to stay. And then they decided in 2012, I'm going to take the Donbass region. There's Russian-speaking people here. And I'm, Crimea never should have been given away by Khrushchev. And he does it. And then, then in comes Kazakhstan, and they have trouble. The leader has trouble. Can you help me out? He goes in. He takes it. Now he's got another sphere of influence. Same thing's happens in Belarus. That leader's about to be ousted. Lushenko says, can you help me out? He says, yeah. So he's got this influence. He said, now I'm going to go for the big one. It's always bothered me. Ukrainian, he, they won't come to the table. They won't just give us this region. They won't just give us Crimea. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of this comedian. I'll go take him. And now he finds himself in the utter definition of a quagmire, do you see? Do you see them thinking like that? I think you you largely have it right. Um, my one caveat is it's still very early. We still have a lot of Russian firepower um, that has yet to be brought to bear. I I too share how it's not been going well for the Russians for lots of reasons. They haven't integrated their forces. They haven't uh, assured. Uh, supply lines and and lots of other um, um, observations about how poorly it's going. But uh, this is really early still. Um, We have a three-mile-long convoy uh, of Russian armored vehicles outside of Kiev, according to uh, certain reporting. So we have to be really um, careful. Uh, Russia will escalate. Putin will escalate. I think that's very clear. And so we need to be plotting uh, next steps and how we can uh, protect and advance our collective interests, including those of the Ukrainians, in a way that um, minimizes the risks of escalation and and protects our values and our interests. Barry Pavel is with us. He worked for Bush as well as uh, uh, President Obama. And we're watching video now just in uh, from Kharkiv, the second biggest city, and they're hitting them a lot harder, to your point. But it looks as though Barry, I want to give you, let's fast forward this. They continue to shell the city in a haphazard, see cities in a haphazard way and taking out residence after residence and begin to essentially flatten these places because they don't want to get out of their vehicles and fight or block to block. What are our options? Because it is, you're seeing the protests around the world. We don't, we didn't ask for those protests. Governments aren't asking the Germans, uh, the French, the Russians. Uh, the Ukrainians, even the Belarusians, to to protest in the streets. We had 40 in America against this aggression. What do we do if the blood begins to really pour, if Zavelny gets killed? Yeah, so I, th- I think this is uh, where things get uh, much more difficult. We have to be really careful that we don't instigate World War III, where the United States homeland, where the homelands of uh, European NATO allies are um, put at significant risk as well. But we also don't want to be bystanders as an innocent democratic country, you know, is completely flattened. And so I do worry that Russia, um, that the Russian military will use these Grozny tactics of just leveling city blocks um, and not um, caring at all about civilian casualties. And I think as those images, if that happens, and as those images, you know, cross our screens, the pressure to act, the, the, the public sentiment, we already saw 
um, uh, a poll. I saw a poll yesterday, something like 77 percent of those asked thought that um, it was it, it was kind of our fight and that NATO should get more involved, even though Ukraine is not a, a formal treaty ally. So I think we need to sort of really um, kind of up the uh, investment, um, strengthen the weapons going in there, strengthen the, the funding going in there, the humanitarian assistance wherever possible. But I think when you there's a tip over point when you start to put in, you know, American uh, forces, NATO forces, that gets to that's a different situation. So are the Ukrainians doing well enough that what we're doing already is sufficient? We need to keep watching that. But if I think if we if and when it gets to a much more difficult situation, we have a national conversation that we need to have happen. And that needs to happen really quickly. Hey, Barry, we have to have a national conversation about practicality. We keep pretending that these bad actors are going to be rational. They were going to reset our relationships. They're going to understand me. They couldn't understand the other person. But uh, me, they'll understand. Uh, They were doing with China. We're doing with Iran. We did it with Russia. And now by placating in 2008, we have an absolute mess in 2022. Do you believe the next leader of this country has to explain that in the world that we're in, the only one we know, that the only way to get through bad actors is through the, the strength of our military and a fear of reprisal, that we can't talk our way with an irrational person? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in particular in this crisis uh, and, and have talked with colleagues that the, the only way to get through to Putin is to punch him in the nose. That said, um, it's been remarkable how uh, the Europeans, including the new German government, have really come together and stepped up in unprecedented ways, including Germany's announcement of its new defense uh, spending targets, unprecedented again. Uh, But I think it took this kind of clear threat to unify uh, the allies. And I think, you know, it's less helpful if it's only the U.S. out there, you you know, saying things. But uh, but I do agree we should start connecting the dots a little more than we have. We've seen this uh, particular uh, movie before, and we didn't do as much of that as we should have. And so how do we apply these lessons to Xi Jinping uh, as the really, really top priority by far, but also um, Kim Jong-un and others? So I I think we really need to try to be a little clearer and a little stronger, as you suggest. Right. I just think that that's the foreign policy that's going to work. Not, you know, with Germany, it won't. They're an ally, even if we disagree. But when you have these people that want to reconstitute a country that disappeared in 1991, we can't sit by and try to talk them out of it. I wish we lived in a different world, but we don't. Barry, it's always great talking to you. Great to talk to you, too. All right. When we come back, Senator Ron Johnson on how this all will play when they get briefed today and what he expects to happen at the State of the Union address, where the numbers look extremely strong at this hour for Republicans. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A radio show like no other. 
It's Brian Kilmeade. This is crucial because Vladimir Putin wanted to divide us. He viewed NATO as a weak entity, and if it were divided, he could roll right through Ukraine and then right up to the border, maybe through NATO as well. So uh, that has been rebuffed. Uh, the fight certainly is on. I think, quite frankly, when it comes to nuclear weapons, you don't threaten the use of nuclear weapons if you think you're winning. No. You don't do that. So uh, it's a very solid front right now with NATO, and uh, it's a very, very hard moment. But thankfully, we have some assets together that ensure that we are calm and we are going forward together. Senator Ron Johnson joins us now. That was Joel Rubin, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, talking about what the, the, the scare tactic they used on Sunday. I hope it's a scare tactic. That Vladimir Putin says we're getting our nuclear arsenal ready. Really? Nice. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson joins us now. Senator, were you surprised to hear that statement from Vladimir Putin? I was. Uh, let, let's face it, that's not something you say if you feel you're winning. Uh, that's, that's the statement of a loser. Uh, now, I think we all understand exactly what kind of resources Vladimir Putin has. But uh, as I've been pointing out, what are the Russian soldiers fighting for? The kleptocracy? Uh, the dictatorship, the tyranny that is Russia uh, versus what uh, the Ukrainians are fighting for. They're, they're fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for their families. They're fighting for their children. They're fighting for their future. Uh, so I think Vladimir Putin uh, miscalculated this is probably a, uh, an understatement. I don't think he even began to understand how ferociously the Ukrainians would defend their country and their families and their children. Um, and I, I also think he's finding out that his army is probably not uh, as effective as he assumed they were. And partly that might be because of uh, just Russian soldier morale. I mean, these are these are their, you know, the Ukrainians and Russians are, I will call them cousins, okay? Um, that's got to be a difficult order to follow as you're slaughtering people that you have an affinity toward. Um, so I, I, I'm just hoping and praying. I ask all your listeners to pray for President Zelensky, who has shown uh, true leadership, true courage. Uh, it's certainly, I think, one of the factors in, in terms of why Ukrainians are, are fighting. They've got a leader that's there, right. that's uh, risking himself. Uh, let's face it, he is number one target. He's not leaving. And so you see uh, Ukrainians you know, heading back into Ukraine. Uh, to defend uh, their country, uh, it's 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 inspiring. At the same time, it's just a horror show. It's just it's just awful. These atrocities, and and let's face it, there's there's one group of people to blame here, and that is Vladimir Putin and his kleptocracy and his cronies. Uh, they are they are now pariahs. They are now war criminals. So they've always been murderous thugs. Right now, now they are full fledged war criminals, and you, you don't put that genie back in the bottle. Senator, the other thing is pretty clear. I like the fact that they exposed all this intelligence about the false flag and that they plan on attacking and the day they did it. I think in the long run, that's a good move. I think it actually uh, unnerved uh, Vladimir Putin and maybe changed his strategy, which seems by military experts I had a chance to talk to were ridiculous. He wanted to attack from four sides with a third of his forces. Now two-thirds are in their country, but the problem is they're not supplied effectively. They didn't plan it out right. Most of the people going in didn't even know about it. Instead of trying to take the capital and decapitate the regime that most people would do, sadly, even though I had not, not warranted to do so, they wanted to try to take four cities. They lost on every single one of them. So having said that, we've, got, we've responded with, uh, uh, with, a, with sanctions, and we're on the, we went after the 
I, I guess the SWIFT system, and this SWIFT system on the surface, it seems like a great move. But the problem is with the implementation of it, and as people have brought up, like Andrea Mitchell, hardly, hardly a right-wing zealot, the problem with going in there and on, on disaligning their, uh, their assets or how they borrow money, we haven't gone through with it. Listen to what Andrea Mitchell said, cut 20. What they did on SWIFT, there's still big holes at Swiss cheese, really, on SWIFT, because first they have to wait for the Belgian leaders, the board of directors, to approve it next week. They've got a big cutout for any banks that are involved in energy transactions. So that's to protect Germany and Italy and others. And which banks are those? They could be some of the worst oligarch-controlled banks. So let's wait to see exactly how it's implemented. So you know business. You came from the business world. That's going to be key. How we the Treasury right now has nothing... Uh, in terms of rules that are public about how they're adjusting? Well, the reality of the situation is Russia supplies uh, a large percentage of the world's oil and gas supply. And countries want that oil and gas. They are dependent on it. Their populations are dependent on it. And so we need to recognize that. And we're kind of whistling by the graveyard thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to impose all these uh, horrific sanctions when a lot of the countries depend on that oil and gas are going to say, well, hang on here. Uh, we still need oil and gas. I mean, you, you may have yours, but we need ours. And so that's a reality that I think uh, you know, has just been missed. And I don't think this administration was, was being honest about. I think the biggest blunder, quite honestly, was just the reluctance of the West, including the U.S., to fully arm Ukraine. I think you know, I've heard this in, in my role as a, the chairman, now ranking member of the European Subcommittee and Center of Foreign Relations, uh, you know, Germany, for sure, is always concerned about, you know, ramping up and, you know, providing too much military assistance to uh, to Ukraine because that would upset Russia. Well, now, now they're realizing, well, that didn't deter, uh, that, that didn't really work out anyway. Uh, now we have to supply the brave Ukrainians with the weaponry they need to defend their nation, and we need to do it fast. Uh, I am hearing that we're not doing it quickly enough. Uh, we need to make sure that this administration uh, – responds rapidly. We, 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 you know, Ukrainians can't wait a couple days. They need the arms now while the supply routes are still open before Vladimir Putin decides just an all-out bombing campaign. I mean, that, that's, that's my concern is, you know, right now he's probably still reluctant to do all-out war, you know, hoping to move in, you know, decapitate the, through assassination the leadership. And just install his puppet regime and be accepted by the Ukrainian people. He's finding out that's not going to happen. They hate him. And my concern yeah. is he's, you know, he he's not going to want to lose, and the horror that could follow uh, him, his desire not to lose, could could be, be pretty bad. So we need to get armaments and munitions uh, into Ukraine now. Yeah, they, they do. They, they might be doing scorched earth already, as predicted. Get this: uh, we're just getting this report from uh, one of the reporters on the scene. Uh, the Ukraine says Russia has begun launching grad rockets, which are not precise by any stretch. They just uh. hit the vicinity into residential areas of Kharkiv, the second biggest city, as its invasion sputters. So they're trying to just in, trying to loosen up the target, trying to kill as many people as possible so they can roll in unencumbered. So what we have done and what I give the Germans tremendous credit, it took a long time. And I think it's 100,000 people who protested in Berlin. It has a lot to do with it. They are now reigniting their nuclear energy program, number one. Number two, they're taking $400 million worth of lethal aid and sending it to the Ukrainians. They're very close. It could get there quickly, theoretically. And they're allowing other lethal aid to come through their 
property uh, through their country proper. Now, when asked about oil production and how we could make up for the rise in prices, which is certainly going to happen because of the sanctions on the Russians. By the way, our market's down almost 500 points. Here's what Jen Psaki said, especially as it, and the first the question was, what about the big calls uh, that Tom Cotton and others have said to to actually get put online the um, the pipeline? Uh, let's listen. Cut 26. I would say that the congressman's recommendations there, the Keystone Pipeline, was not processing oil through the system. That does not solve any problems. That's a misdiagnosis or maybe a, a, a misdiagnosis of what needs to happen. I would also note that on oil leases, what this actually justifies in President Biden's view is the fact that we need to reduce our dependence on foreign oil, on oil in general, and need to and we need to look at other ways of, process, of having energy in our country and others. One of the interesting things George, we've seen over the last week or so is that a number of European countries are recognizing they need to reduce their own reliance on Russian oil. So uh, I'm not sure we agree with that assessment of what needs to happen, but energy sanctions remain on the table. So she thinks we just got to find, get solar panels and get some wind farms. She does not understand that, um, that the world is not ready to transition from fossil fuels, even in a time of war when people are dying. Now, I would say Democrats' ability to deny reality is simply draw dropping. And of course, that's what you're seeing. So no, they'll never, they'll never admit they were wrong. Uh, The legacy media, uh, social media, big tech giants, uh, they installed Biden, they'll never admit they were wrong either. So we do have a little bit of a communication problem here, but but hopefully more Americans' eyes are being awakened to the fact that we're a fossil fuel-based economy. Uh, Self-inflicted wounds uh, don't work very well. Uh, so, no, this is, it's obvious what we need to do. Uh, we need to drill more oil here. We need to become energy independent. Again, we were until this administration got into office and made us energy dependent once again. That's not working out very well. And, Senator, I know you're running for another term, and it's going to be a hard race. But one thing you're doing while you're having this term Combining with Senator Mike Braun and Senator Mike Lee to induce legislation to protect doctors, patients, and prescribers with the Right to Treat Act. What is the, what is the, what problem is this addressing? Well, for, for, first of all, Brian, appreciate you bringing it up. It, it shouldn't be necessary. Uh, doctors have full off-label prescription rights. Uh, no government agency, no no law, no regulation should prevent them from treating a fully FDA-approved. Uh, or using a full FDA-approved drug, and right now that's basically what's happening. Also, doctors should be at the top of the treatment tr- chain. No, no government agency should be dictating or regulating how doctors practice medicine, but that's what we've seen during the pandemic to disastrous results. Hundreds of thousands of people, I believe, lost their lives because doctors weren't able to use literally a cornucopia of drugs available for, uh, to treat COVID early. Uh, so NIH just said, basically, if you get if you test positive for COVID, go home, uh, wait, be afraid until your lips turn blue, and then we're not going to do that much for you in the hospital either. So this has been a travesty. This is a, kind of a tacked on to my right to try bill, which allows people the freedom to use non-FDA, fully, fully FDA-approved drugs. This, this just lets them use fully FDA-approved drugs, which they've really been denied that use. But if you mention my campaign, let me mention my campaign website, ronjohnsonforsenate.com. Brian, they've already outspent me $13 million to two million, um, they want the Senate seat. Uh, if, if you want government accountability, if, if you want to see us save this 
U.S. Senate seat in Wisconsin, I'm going to need a lot of help. So Ron Johnson for Senate.com. Uh, right now, uh, the, the Republicans overall have a five-point advantage over Democrats in an ABC poll about where they w- w- would, uh, what party they want to lead the country. Do you think that's going to help you when it comes to winning in Wisconsin again for the third time? Well, I think Americans are waking up to what a disaster Democrat governance and Democrat policies are. But, you know, you take nothing for granted. I mean, politics can turn on a dime. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work my tail off. Uh, I'm just going to try and communicate to the fo- folks here in Wisconsin. Uh, really, this is a fight for freedom. Uh, our country is really at a hinge point here. And Democrat governance is, you know, taking us down the road to socialism, uh, green energy, as we were talking earlier, that's not working out too well. That's making us vulnerable. That's increasing energy prices, gasoline prices, which are up over 40% as our used car prices. I mean, these things don't just happen, Brian. All of these results uh, are because of Democrat policies. This is, look at our open border. One and a quarter million people entered illegally and were dispersed in some way, shape, or form all, all over America. We don't know where they are. That's a, that's a number larger than eight, the population of eight states. So Democrat governance is a disaster, and that's really what this campaign is going to be about. But we've got the formula for success. We proved it during the last administration. You have a reasonable level of regulation, a competitive tax system, and then let government get out of the way and let Americans do what Americans do best, dream, aspire, build, and create. Yeah, uh, the Republican Party practically beg you to run. They better back you. Uh, and if they don't win your seat, if you, they lose your seat, uh, they're not going to win the Senate. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson, always working hard. Thanks so much. Stay well. Take care. You got it. Uh, he also is on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, the Budget Committee, and Homeland Security. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, your first time to talk. one 408 Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. But I can tell you, there there are people now, you know, just discussing that talk about for the first time ever since Putin's been in power for 22 years, that maybe we need, you know, hopefully there'll be a coup. Hopefully they'll stop him before it's too late. I'm not predicting that. I want to be crystal clear about that. If it, I think that's a very low probability event. Um, but the fact that it's being discussed, that is something new. He is, he's lost this country, including the people that are closest to him. Yeah, I laugh when they say Vladimir Putin's got 69% approval rating. Oh, yeah, I'll write disapproval. I'll end up in jail for 20 years. Oh, it's an anonymous poll? I'm sure I can trust the government on that. And that, by the way, we understand CNN reporting. There's an emergency economics meter, the meeting that Vladimir Putin's having, because we know his interest rate went from, from 9 to 20%, and the ruble has dropped down to 30% in value. Uh, this is going to be the worst is yet to come for him economically, as he's trying to pound his way through uh, Kiev and Kharkiv and other uh, other cities. He does have three small cities currently in the Ukraine. Nora is watching on Fox Nation. Thank you for that, Nora. What's on your mind? I was just wondering if we're starting to see unrest in, like, Georgia and Belarus. And I know we're starting to see demonstrations in Moscow, but I'm, I'm just wondering if, you know, if— He's going to have to fight on other fronts that he didn't expect. 
And, Brian, I love your show. I watch it all the time. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. And also, on Fox Nation, being that you have the app, today, for the first time, you can get who is Vladimir Putin. So many people say, who is this guy? Where did he come from? You know, there, where was the order? There's so much mystery with Russia anyway. So did a whole thing on who he is. Uh, it's about 45 minutes. I think everyone needs a competency on how, how this guy has really changed. I mean, you could be evil, but you, you could also be cunning. And he's lost that cunningness, and he's totally detached in this operation. He's going to have to kill his way out of it, and his country's paying an awful price. He united NATO. He has Sweden and Finland ready to apply for NATO membership for the first time ever. And the Ukrainian people speaking out saying, I want to be part of the EU and NATO. It's exactly what he didn't want. And he does not have a huge economy to build off of. He's got a relationship with China. But they are, they, are, they are rooted in being enemies, not allies. So we'll see how long this lasts, and we'll see how long it goes. Nora, thanks so much for the call. A lot of people are also writing me on BrianKillMe.com. I'll get to some of them. So we'll give you the latest. We know the second city is being pounded, Kharkiv, the second biggest city. We know there's a convoy of armaments heading into Ky- Kiev, or Kiev, as the Ukrainians know it, Kiev, as the Russians know it as, are coming in to really pound that country, that city. We know this, that Vitaly Klitschko has backed off his earlier statement saying he's the mayor of that city, former uh, multiple-year multiple, uh, multiple year heavyweight champion of the world. He's saying we're not encircled, which means that means you can get food and supplies in and out, which is going to be key if this lasts for weeks on end because you're going to torture a bunch of people and you got babies that are going to need food and kids uh, not going to school and wonder running for their lives. You have some long-term effects. They are in talks now. We are saying that right now we know the Ukrainians went into those talks saying we want a total ceasefire and we want you out of the country. I don't see Russia agreeing to either one of those things. But we'll see. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by Michael Goodwin of the New York Post, Fox News contributor, just spoke to Donald Trump. Bottom of the hour, Jonathan Ward. He knows enough about China that probably in the 10 universities, he's the author of China's Vision of Victory. The founder of the Atlas Organization, a consultancy focused on the rise of China and India. India is acting pretty uh, oddly so far in this big conflict. Uh, We'll discuss that uh, with him at the bottom of the hour. But first, let's get to, and by the way, special thanks. uh, Of course, we welcome everyone in New York and also uh, to our family of affiliates. Another one uh, from Akron, Ohio, very special one. WHLO is now aboard. Uh, The slogan is Akron's News Talk. And we want to be all over Ohio, and we're privileged to be in Akron. Thanks so much, guys, for signing up with us. I hope you enjoy the ride. So let's from New York and heard around the country, heard around the world, let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He's out at his compound, doesn't come into town very much. He's increasingly unhinged. He seems uh, erratic. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. Biggest mystery, is Putin crazy like a fox or just flat out crazy like he's never been before? The Western leaders who know him best and feel he has lost it 
They say he's a different man. What are his options for now in on in? And who exactly is left that he can call a friend? Friendly nation or friendly person? Number two. The fact that the sanctions have all of these loopholes is a big problem. What are we doing on the Russian Central Bank? What are we going to supply to the Ukrainians in order to support them? None of those questions have been answered. Danielle Pletka not buying that this whole SWIFT system and the sanctions have been implemented the way they're saying. The world responds, though, in a massive way. That's clear. But is it enough? Russia's already feeling the financial pain. That is true. They're in an emergency meeting right now with the economic counselors in Russia. More importantly, the people of Russia are realizing the pain and feeling the pain as their ruble is turning to rubble. Number one. Satellite images, they show a convoy that's more than three miles long of Russian trucks and artillery units headed toward the Ukrainian capital. This is significant because the concern amid the backdrop of possible negotiations succeeding is that the Russians would increase the amount they are shelling cities across this country. The latest from the battlefield, Russia versus the Ukraine. Three small cities have fallen uh, into Russian hands. And there is some word that the number two city under, under uh, uh, onslaught right now could fall as well. Twice they tried to take it over the last two nights. They failed. They're trying to do it in daylight now. With me right now is Michael Goodwin. Michael, I get the sense that Vladimir Putin is clueless that the Ukrainian people wanted nothing to do with him and his culture and his country. And that he's getting that reality check right now. But it's far from over. Uh, Good morning, Brian. Yeah, it does seem to be hanging in the balance still, which is something of a surprise, of course. Uh, I think everyone thought that uh, Ukraine was his for the taking, and I I guess we all forgot that the Ukrainian people were not on board with coming under the Soviet yoke again. So it is a remarkable phenomenon to watch and also to watch the world reacting. I mean, it's it's almost like a sporting event where people are picking a side and rooting for that side, and the world is rooting for Ukraine. I mean, you, you, you just see it everywhere, you know, whether it's these demonstrations. Uh, there was a thing in, in uh, one of the rugby uh, games or uh, soccer games over the weekend where a uh, Ukrainian player came on the field and the uh, entire stadium erupted in cheers. So you have a real sense of the heart of the world is with you. Ukraine. But in the end, this is a war. And so bullets and that that will determine the outcome. And certainly Russia has a a far superior military. Uh, They may not be well trained. They may not be well have a good plan, but they still have the brute force, which is the way they have always operated. But if you don't mind committing war crime after war crime, if you don't mind leveling a city Berlin style 1948, you could do it. But I don't know if the world will will tolerate it. I am struck and heartened by 100,000 people in Berlin, by the tens of thousands that are fighting the streets of Paris at this time, by the 40 demonstrations against Russia in our country, and the 6,000 that have been arrested in St. Petersburg and around Russia for protesting their own country's unprovoked war actions. I mean, this is great courage. Not through social media, through logic uh, and understanding that this can't stand. I'm heartened by this, and there's been very little good news in the world of late. Uh, Brian, I completely agree with you. And and I I would add this, that all of that outpouring of support 
from ordinary people around the world, I think is what forced the hands of the governments in Europe and even uh, Biden to get off their butts and do something to help Ukraine. So you had this, not only the, the economic sanctions on the banks and all that, which are still being worked out, we'll see what they are, the Russian Central Bank, uh, uh, you know, BP pulling out of Rosneft, but also the military equipment for Germany to send military equipment and to say that it would up its own spending on its own defense. I mean, this is this is NATO finally waking up. This is what Donald Trump demanded of NATO three years ago and, and was accused of trying to break NATO up. NATO, as he told me last week, is a paper tiger. But finally, we're seeing some signs of life. And then uh, what is also shocking is how far behind Joe Biden is. It looks like he went to sleep over the weekend and he was woken by what was happening in Europe to support Ukraine. The United States was not leading. It was a follower. Uh, Joe Biden learned too well the Barack Obama uh, idea of leading from behind. America is not leading. It is behind. And that is shameful. We don't have to put American troops in in harm's way, but we could have done a lot more, we could have done it a lot sooner, and it would have, I think, made a difference. I mean, if Putin knew the world was going to react this way, would he have invaded anyway? I mean, I think he anticipated that the world would stay asleep, that Europe would, would moan and complain but do nothing, and same and, for and the United States. And to back you States. up, Michael, think about Afghanistan. It falls for, for sure in August to September. In October, he starts putting tens of uh, thousands of troops onto the border. And he says, well, this is the way they act? This is America humiliated? We might, might as well take advantage. And think about it. If you break it down, he takes the two Georgia provinces in 2008. There was some sanctions. He lived, he lived with it. And then in 2014, he takes those two disputed regions. They're not disputed. He decided, say, they're Russian-speaking, the Donbass regions. And he takes Crimea. He says Khrushchev never should have given it away. It belongs to us. Nothing happened. And then he puts these troops on the border. Nothing happened. In Afghanistan, we leave. We leave all those weapons on the ground. He thinks well, there's no way, since NATO was never even informed we were leaving, they were going to come together and stop them because Ukraine wasn't even a member of NATO. So they go ahead and take it. And now, all of a sudden, he's shocked to see the stands being made. So now this is the first time he's getting resistance, and it turns out his army sucks. Mike Rogers, the former House Intelligence Committee chairman, said this about what he's seeing so far. Cut eight. I would not get too excited about what you see as some early Ukrainian uh, victories. Once the Russians catch up with their logistics lines... This is going to get uh, a little bit uglier. And remember, the Russians are right off their border. So their logistics, their ability to push armament forward, their absolute dominance in artillery and missiles presents a huge challenge to Ukraine. And so we shouldn't deny that. But he went on to say this, cut nine. Here's the good news. I mean, Putin has managed uh, in a week uh, to do something happen ha- hasn't happened in a generation. Germany is remilitarizing. Uh, Sweden is now sending weapons right. to Ukraine. Finland is now saying we're going to get involved and stop uh, Russian <laughs> air flights. I mean, that is not something that we've ever seen happen, and it's happened in a week. So, I mean, all that stuff is so encouraging. If we had begged them to do it, um, we would force them to do it. And when 100,000 show up in Berlin, suddenly 
get this, the Germans are saying that we're um, getting rid of Nord Stream 2. That was good. And then they say we're going to allow uh, uh, offensive weapons to pass through our territory. That's good. Then they say they're going to supply them. That's great. Now they say they're going to revisit nuclear energy. I mean, they, they look at that as clean energy. This is unbelievable, right? It is. And, and it just shows how asleep they all were. I mean, these are, these are obviously the right way to approach a bully. But instead, they, they slept and, and sort of wished it away until it was thrust in their faces. And they knew that, look, had Putin stopped at these two uh, provinces ne- next to Russia and said, that's all I want. But when he went for the whole country and then, and then talked about Poland and the Balkans in ways that suggested he's, he really does want to recapture the entire Soviet Union, uh, then I think that's what woke them up. But imagine again, Brian, if they had been on the balls of their feet in the beginning, if they had seen that that Putin was was acting the bully because he thought they were afraid and would do nothing. What if they had dissuaded him from that thinking in the beginning by showing they were going to get in and help protect Ukraine? I mean, I have to say the uh, the head of the EU, uh, as opposed to NATO, but the head of the EU said said something very bold on the weekend. She said, you know, Ukraine is one of us, meaning Ukraine is part of Europe as far as we're concerned. I mean, if that thinking had prevailed earlier, if Joe Biden, I mean, that awful press conference where he said, you know, if, if, if it's a minor invasion and all of those things were invitations to Putin and he accepted the invitation. It's like, come and get it. And he thought he could come and get it. So thank God these, these countries are waking up to the reality that uh, you give a bully an inch and he'll want a foot. And that's what has happened here. And I think finally they, they've recognized Putin for what he is. And we just have a chance to stop him and maybe depose him. And that'll be one major problem uh, the world doesn't need. Russia will always be an issue. I get it. But we don't always we don't have to deal with this. This guy is totally out of control. But I want you to hear Vitaly and Vladimir Klitschko. I've dealt with both of them in, when I was doing all sports. And you had, you were a sports background, too. So I contacted a promoter over the weekend, and he says they're afraid of giving up the location. They're afraid of doing anything on satellite. But they pointed to a German interview they did on Saturday on tape that was sent out through their news service. Listen to what they said, why these two heavyweight champions who can live in luxury anywhere in the world went back, one to become mayor, and the other went back to, to, to join his countrymen. Listen to what the mindset of Ukrainians is. Cut 15. It's not about home. It's about these values that you have chosen. And someone wants to show us how we should live. We've made our choice. This is our country, our choice, our freedom. Freedom for our children, for the future, too. I think there's a lot more at play than just the city. I've come. I was in Europe recently, and I came back because I was called. My brother, now take care of me, our mother, my circle of friends, and especially in this crisis. I can't miss anything. I really need to be there. It's really about values and, above all, voting. Ukraine, fight for this free choice and decision and stand for the fact that it is not about what we want it to be. It's about values. We want Ukraine to be a modern European state because we want to be part of Europe, because we are Europeans with our mentality, geographically, that with our history we are Europeans, and Putin isn't. He wants to have Ukraine back to his empire and us because of that. We fight for our values. 
And they know there's targets on their back, and they're 6'7". You know, these guys are huge. It's going to be very hard to hide. And they're not looking to hide, but they're looking to survive. Uh, Zelensky, too. So this is going to be a very tough week or two. And if they can do that, these guys are going to live. They're going to be living through a, uh, like fame like they've never experienced before. Certainly well, respect. Yeah. You know, Brian, I think, I think there's a lesson here for a lot of Americans, too, who have, you know, sort of, mock democracy, mock sort of the founding of America and what it means. And here you see living, breathing people, not just migrants coming from Central America to escape violence, but you see people willing to fight for their freedom. I mean, it it, it should be a lesson to Americans, too, because I think we've all gotten uh, lazy and hazy about our founding about what America means to the world. Right now, America is, is, as I say, leading from behind, which is to say not leading at all. But it, it, is, it is time for a rebirth in America of, of our values, our historic values, because it is that sense of freedom that the Ukrainians are embracing and risking their lives for. And as you say, you know, these, right. these, these famous celebrities, they're coming home to fight for that. I mean, that is a remarkable tale of sort of the human heart and and for the for all Americans I think it should remind us of what our country is supposed to be about I think you have your next column I would not be surprised (laughs) if I seen that in the New York Post this week I love it Uh, Michael Goodwin thanks so much my pleasure Brian thank you you got it 1-866-408-7669 your time to talk you listen to the Brian Kilmeade show so glad you're here Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And I will not be diplomatic. Some countries are trying to leave loopholes, exclude a number of banks so that they can apply some measures with their left hands and continue to trade with Russia with their right hands. Stop doing this now. Stop trading with the blood of Ukrainian men, women, and children. This is not a metaphor, but the reality of what you're doing. History will judge you, and your names will forever remain in history books as names of traitors of humanity who failed to oppose the aggressor in Europe at a crucial time. And what that's talking about is uh, their vice the Ukrainian foreign minister is saying, hey, I know you want to get off the SWIFT system. You want to kick Russia off the SWIFT system. That's great. He goes, but don't exempt these key banks, like, for example, energy banks, because if you do that, you're allowing Russia to continue to be able to finance and stand themselves up economically. I love what they're doing. They are forcing the rest of the world to say, see, you left us alone. At least put together decent sanctions. And what, what, what Zelensky has done is what Joe Biden couldn't do. It's unite the world to say, look, you know we're fighting. You know who the enemy is. You know exactly we did nothing wrong, so try to help me. You don't want to send people? I don't even want your people. We just want the weapons necessary to do it. We're not asking for EU admission. We're not asking for NATO admission. What we're doing is asking for you to stop doing business with them. And because they gotten off the SWIFT system and they stopped airline flights and they uh, they said they're starting to uh, make it harder for them to— to get parts for their cars. Listen to this. The ruble has sank major in 30%. 
They have already taken out $7 billion from the banks, have the Russian people. That was going into Monday. So interest rates, I mentioned, went from 9% to 20%. The value of the ruble is down 30%. Card parts are harder to find. Travel is going to be exceedingly difficult as they stop flights. They took out two World Cup matches. The Formula One race that was supposed to take place is not taking place. BP is bowing out of their relationship with the second biggest gas and oil producer in the country. Businesses are asking more and more uh, for their cash, for their money in cash. Whether you're trying to buy a cup of coffee or you're trying to buy a car, they're not looking to even use the ruble. That's the damage that Vladimir Putin has cast. But that's how the world has to unite. I really salute that prime minister saying, yeah, don't give me fighters, but don't help my enemy. Well said. Jonathan Ward next. What does China think about all this? Why is India sitting on the side? He knows both countries well. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This invasion was green-lighted by Beijing. Russia has 11 time zones, and they were able to move their troops from the Far East back to Belarus to be able to invade not just from their Russian actual territory in the east and the Crimean Sea's territory in the southeast, but they invaded from Belarus as well, and they're encircling Kiev as we speak. That was able to happen because they moved the troops back because she said, hey, I'd love it if you could help destabilize Europe and the U.S. And by the way, I'd love you to be the scout team offense on what a cyber hybrid war looks like, so we, China, know what it might look like if we try to seize Taiwan. Uh, that's a huge stretch so far, but is it? That's Senator Ben Sass. Jonathan Ward, author of China's Vision of Victory and founder of the Atlas Organization, uh, joins us now. Jonathan, what do you think of Senator Sass's uh, estimation or hypothesis? Hi, Brian. It's great to be back with you. Um, well, look, I mean, Beijing is a major piece of why this is happening. I mean, Putin would not be able to get this done without the backing of a superpower. He needed an economic patron in order to do this, knowing that they're going to be, you know, that Russia's going to be cut off from the West in many ways, um, and that we're essentially going to be in a state of economic warfare um, with the Russian Federation. So um, the meeting at the Olympics was important, but the Russia-China relationship has been building up across all fronts for, for years now. So I think this is absolutely um, accurate to see this as uh, part of a um, you know, Russia-China joint play to take down the American world. And that's what I've been saying for a long time. I mean, we really have this problem where you have multiple adversaries that are trying to take apart the world order that the U.S. built, and um, they're doing it together. I mean, we have a Russia-China problem. It doesn't make a lot of sense to separate the variables when they're working this closely. That's together. true, but inherently they've always been clashing, right? I mean, they, they don't have a great history of, of uh, being great friends. Well, it depends on how far back you, you wind the history. I and mean, I think too many people use this, the Sino-Soviet split as a reference point. I mean, they had um, they were you know closely aligned in the Korean War. Um, you go back a couple hundred years earlier, and you had a variety of treaties in, um, in the Amur River Valley that allowed Russia and China to, you know, Russia could expand east while China expanded west in that case. So they have a much longer history than, than just the, the um, 20th century that we're used to. And they've been cooperative in the past as empires as much as anything. So you know, most people don't have that reference point, but the, the, their ability to get things done once they've solved their border, which is what they absolutely have done here in the sense of they're going to, um, you know, go along to get along and and both uh, press against the United States. So so we're dealing with something that we should not underestimate. True. But let's look at how it's going so far. We see that China abstained from condemning Russia rather than just 
bailed out of it, you know, um, like Russia did, right? So they abstained from that. Number two is they're calling for talks. So they're not coming out uh, vociferously defending Russia's actions, correct? And they have more trade with Ukraine than Russia does. Right, but those aren't the major factors. I mean, the important thing here is to have a military superpower like Russia um, as a de facto um, you know, partner and, and one that can harass the U.S. In, in, on one end of Eurasia while China has claims on the other. So don't be deceived by Chinese diplomacy. I mean, of course, they're going to lie on the world stage to the United States and other nations and their ability to, you know, not um, to not call this an invasion, an invasion and just sort of play both sides on the diplomatic stage should not deceive anyone um, when it comes to their their provision of, of economic support so for, would, for this situation. But would, would it have done in the short term? is United uh, NATO in a way I haven't really seen in my lifetime. I mean, you have Germany. I don't, we're not, not necessarily in the lead on this. Germany, you see how they've changed. They're starting to move now. They got rid of Nord Stream 2 for now, not certifying it. Not getting rid of Nord Stream 1 yet, but they're starting to move on nuclear energy. They've pledged to give 2% of their uh, defense. You saw 100,000 people uh, lining the streets of Berlin. And now you have France, who took the lead on this and sees Russia as an enemy. There's almost no nation in the world outside Brazil, India, and China that doesn't see Russia as a belligerent power. Well, that's right. And this is all important. I mean, the West's handling of this is, you know, has some serious positive points to it. I mean, we're, we're supplying the right military equipment. The, the Ukrainians, as of um, are speaking right now, are doing well in the field. It appears, um, you know, a lot of Russian armor is being destroyed by javelins and MLAs and you know, stingers are playing a role. I mean, this is all, um, you know, uh, sort of being handled in the right way thus far, creating a serious problem for Putin. So, so that's another important piece of this. I mean, it's not that this is going well, obviously, and Beijing gets to watch that. They get to see what their major, you know, um, you know, unlimited partner looks like under massive sanctions and in a war that is not going well. So, so, so those are important signals to, to China um, as much as anything. And then Russia becoming a global pariah um, is, is on one hand, yes, I mean, the unification of NATO around this issue is very important, but also think about it this way. Uh, where else does Russia have to turn at this point? I mean, their only, you know, serious friend is China, and that means that our Russia-China problem is going to be compounded. Um, so, so we are, I think, in quite a dangerous situation, um, both in this crisis and coming out of it when uh, it comes to having... I want you to hear what uh, Neil Ferguson's thoughts are on this. He's from the Hoover Institute. Cut five. It really has been a debacle. I'm reminded of the worst year of the Carter presidency in 1979, when the Iranian revolution was followed by the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But I actually think this could turn out to be worse, because I think the consequences of this failure, and it, and it could be catastrophic for Ukraine, but they'll extend far beyond Ukraine. The Chinese are watching this, and they're thinking to themselves, mm, well, if this can be achieved in Ukraine, then we may well be able to do something similar in Taiwan. And just a, a couple of years. So this is a very dire situation. I agree with your analysis. And do you agree with his? Well, I, I think this, the, the Taiwan implications here are, are very profound. And, and again, if this is why it's so important to, uh, that there be a, a substantial resistance to the Russian invasion, um, both on the ground in, in, in Ukraine and also um, by way of international sanctions. I mean, it's important that Beijing understands 
that this this could be a disaster for them if they try to do the same thing. So deterrence in one theater is deterrence in another. And and even if um, you know Russia is is proceeding with this invasion, there's still um, you know wide berth to make it. A, a very, very costly ordeal for them, and that won't be lost on Beijing. On the other hand, if it goes well for them, ultimately, if they do escalate, if they do start to turn the tide, um, China's going to notice that part, too. So let, let's talk about India. I mean, why is India standing on the side? I know they have a defense agreement with Russia, but, I mean, they're, they're, they're the largest democracy in the world. How could they not sure. see even would Turkey sees? So let me take you back to the 1962 China-India border crisis and border war. At that point, you know, Nehru's biggest problem as prime minister, he did not want to side with the West, even though we were willing to supply him with all the right material, because he didn't want the Sino-Soviet split to come back together. He understood that better than we did at the time that Moscow and Beijing were, were forming a rift. Um, and, and to him, if he swung to the West, then you'd have a Russia-backed China once again. Um, the Sino-Soviet split was underway at that time. So it's the same issue for them now. I mean, they're right on the border with China. China has territorial claims. China's already used force against India just in 2020, and there, there's a long history of that. So to them, um, you know, non-alignment, which is their diplomatic history, basically means having relations with both Russia and the United States. Um, so they're trying to, to balance that. All their a whole lot of their military equipment. I mean, they're trying to replace it as much as they can with American equipment. But all the parts, you know, it's it's Russian weaponry, and that's where their parts and, and equipment comes from. So, you know, they are um, trying to to uh, walk that tightrope once again. Um, it, it it I don't know that that's. Uh, sustainable. I don't think it's wise. I think it would be right for India to now firmly come into the Western camp. Um, but to them, they have a massive border with China. And if the Russia-China relationship deepens, which it will, after this crisis, they're going, they're going to be in big trouble. So that, that explains their point of view. But, um, you know, India's in a, in a dangerous spot. It was brief to me last night that if, if this humiliation continues by Russia, where they put 190,000 troops, which is almost three-quarters of their uh, their fighting force on the border, and they're able to not have success, and they have to ask the Belarusians to come in and fight for them, with them. And if this doesn't yield success, that China's not going to work, and they see the outrage of the West and the, and, the, uh, and the sanctions that are hurting their banking system, destroying the ruble, their credit rating, stopping flights, uh, commercial traffic, uh, these, uh, the divestment from that country, that China doesn't fear for that because the rest of the world is so invested in China already, case in point, look at the NBA. They don't condemn anything with the Uyghurs. We're seeing these, these concentration camps, and basically no one's even talking about it. They still have the Olympics. Or is the rest of the world, the capitalistic culture, so ingrained that we'd give up all of our values if they did something similar to what the Russians are doing to Ukraine, that do the same thing to Taiwan? Would we just look the other way? And I'm not just talking about America, but most of the West. Brian, well, that's why it's so important for people to understand the nature of this problem, that it's both Russia and China, that it's Chinese support for Russia and Russian support for Beijing. That's why this comprehensive strategic partnership, as they call it, it's just so important that we get the picture on that, because if you're going to look the other way on Hong Kong and not look the other way on, on, on Ukraine, I mean, you've got to be able to see the whole thing for what it is. These are partners. They are working together. Um, they are, 
you know, supporting one another in their strategic ambitions. And we've got to call it for what it is. We have a Russia-China problem for the first time since the early Cold War. They support each other, and it doesn't make sense for us to look the other way on China. And it's, you know, genocide and atrocities and its military buildup that's absolutely about war in the Pacific. The longer that we are ignorant about that, um, the, the, the worse off we're going to be. Uh, we've just seen um, a lot of norms be torched overnight um, when it comes to invasion of other states. And the world is, is um, you know, it's time for us to understand how dangerous that really is. It's not just limited to Europe. Hey, it's John- Asia and the Pacific, too. Jonathan, if they were to call in Jonathan Ward and they say uh, that the State Department and Defense Department, as well as the White House, and say, what do you suggest we do about this? Elliot Abrams was on with me on Saturday night. And, you know, we worked through three Republican administrations dating back to Reagan. And he said, we have to go back to spending 7% of our GDP on defense because it's going to be even more challenging now because we have these two Cold War enemies. And we have to understand that, that we got to stop trying to reset a relationship when the other side has no interest in resetting it. Do you believe – what would you recommend if for, for, a, for a State Department, a Defense Department, and a White House – that was going to listen to you? Well, we need a new um, U.S. grand strategy to handle both of these adversaries. We need to do economic containment of China. That means getting our companies to pull them back, pull our investment out, you know, stop throwing, um, you know, technology and capital into the People's Republic of China. And at the same time, um, yes, I think you've got to increase U.S. defense spending and get the alliance system to be global. I mean, the allies in Asia and the allies in Europe need to start working together on both sides of this problem. That's Russia and China. um, And also make it very, very costly for the Russians in the field. Um, and prepare for the defense of the Pacific as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, trying to talk them down is not going to work, and trying to tap into people's patriotism to start making things in here or in or in Central and South America would certainly help. Uh, but just people don't see it now. Maybe they're getting the wake-up call. I know Europe seems to. Jonathan Ward, author of China's Vision of Victory, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. All eyes are on Europe. one 408 uh, from Wisconsin uh, to New York to Washington uh, to California. We'll be getting to all your calls when we return on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Russia has four levels of readiness for their nuclear forces. This is the second level of four. It's an elevated level. And what I think Vladimir Putin is doing, what I think he's trying to do is message uh, the West, message the U.S.-led NATO alliance. He's trying to extort us. He's very much aware that the United States and our NATO allies, but not only our NATO allies, but others, including Sweden, for example, are providing much-needed military assistance to Ukraine that we have the capacity to provide actionable intelligence to Ukrainian forces to aid them in their fight against uh, the Russian aggression. And I think he's trying to extort us and induce us to dial that down a bit out of concern over Russia's uh, nuclear arsenal. Yeah, my, my hope is that they don't cut a deal now and they'll just hold on to more of Ukraine, even though he wants the whole country. Maybe his way out is, I'll just take the portions of which I have, which you should not be able to hold. He shouldn't be holding Crimea. You can go debate. But the other, the Donbass region, he should not. 14,000 have died to push him back, and no deal has been cut. Now he's lost three other cities. Uh, Ukraine's lost three other cities, but they're still hanging tough. Uh, let's go out to Tony Listen, WABC in Elizabeth, uh, New Jersey. Hey, Tony. Hey, how are you? 
Good. Big fan. I just I just need your help to help me break something down, knowing that President Biden is actually leading from behind. He's, he's weak. Um, completely, you can see, uh, like, the other tyrants around the world, like, uh, especially in a situation when Cuba was doing their uprising for freedom and liberty, silence from the White I House know. completely. I mean, uh, I mean, completely dissed that country that's been under for over, what, 63, 64 years, I think. Then, uh, you know, what is this not to inspire North Korea to do something to South Korea or even do something, you know, uh, something that catches everybody by surprise towards Japan or China towards uh, Taiwan? These actions that Russia is taking towards Ukraine. Having the president leap from behind, and as your other guest was say, uh, saying, it, I mean, we're living in some crazy times, and uh, Putin right now is, I believe, he's unpredictable, knowing that he's using these threats and, you know, nuclear threats. Well, and Tony, Tony, a couple I of mean, things. Everything you said, it, I, I believe, within, and my previous guest had said, why are we, like Ron Johnson, why are we, why are we letting Europe take the lead? But here's what, one thing I do like about this. Uh, because we refused to take the lead, because we didn't want to look like there was going to be a U.S.-Russia clash, it has forced the Russia, the Europe to say, wait a second, the, the, our own people want us to show some aggression to defend the uh, Ukrainians, to maybe put more money in defense so we're not the next victims. That's what we've been trying to do, and, and Trump was the first to be effectively get people like Poland and others to do it. Now Germany has pledged to do it. France has pledged to do it. Now we see the, the uh, Estonia and Latvia, all the Eastern European nations are putting, uh, putting together arms. And guess what? Turkey, uh, the heretic of the NATO uh, armed forces, is combining with Ukraine to limit the number of ships going through the Black Sea. When we get the right leader in there, and Joe Biden is not the right leader, and I even think Democrats know it, at least we'll have a more compliant understanding NATO who understands that that alliance was put together predominantly for them. So I think in the long run, them stepping up will help the next leader come in and have more cooperation and allow Sweden and Finland to understand they better join. And that's what I'm for. And to understand, too, that Russia is not the ferocious lion and that they are not they have not modernized their forces to the way they've been advertised. Thanks, Tony. Alex, listening online in Mountain View, California. Alex. All right. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to add some additional information about India. Um, the United States at the recent uh, Nation, United Nations Security Council meeting made a proposal to uh, condemn Russia and to demand that Russia leave Ukraine. Well, India joined China and abstained and refused to support the proposal. Yep. That tells me that India is not a Western country. They don't share our values. And I think that we should be careful in our military relations with that country. They may, they may double-cross us. So, you know, let's, let's deal with them and, uh, and work on things that may have common interests, but don't make them a, a close ally. Yeah, yeah, and by doing – I think they'll end up coming around, Alex, when they realize Russia is a prior state. And Belarus, I hope, understands if they continue to pledge to put troops – into this fight, they're going to be facing the same sanctions that Russia is, only they're not going to be able to absorb anything. Vladimir Putin put aside, Vladimir Putin put aside $600 billion just for this. It's not going to be enough, but they were ready for this to the best they could. Belarus has got no net, just a terrible autocratic leader. 
From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade, live from New York, coming, heard to, coming to you around the country and hopefully heard around the world because the whole world is focused on the Ukraine. I'm going to discuss that with Eric Prince in a matter of moments when it comes to tactics. It looks like we might be heading to the scorched earth phase of Russian operations because they screwed up the first four days so precipitously. And then Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News, will be joining us at the bottom of the hour. Uh, special thanks. We've got a new station aboard. Privileged to have with us in Yuma, Arizona, KBLU, 560 AM, News Talk 560, where Yuma comes to talk. I love it. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. I don't think he's he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He's out at his compound, doesn't come into town very much. He's increasingly unhinged. He seems uh, erratic. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. Uh, that is a quick review of Vladimir Putin. Is he crazy or crazy like a fox? The Western leaders who know him best thinks he's not the same guy. We'll discuss. Number two. The fact that the sanctions have all of these loopholes is a big problem. What are we doing on the Russian Central Bank? What are we going to supply to the Ukrainians in order to support them? None of those questions have been answered. Uh, Daniel Pletka says, hey, I love the intent on the sanctions, but I have to see the execution. She would mention that on Meet the Press. Let's talk about it. Number one. Satellite images, they show a convoy that's more than three miles long of Russian trucks and artillery units headed toward the Ukrainian capital. This is significant because the concern amid the backdrop of possible negotiations succeeding is that the Russians would increase the amount they are shelling cities across this country. Uh, that is uh, so interesting, fascinating, and horrifying. Russia versus Ukraine. The latest from the battlefield is three small cities fall uh, to, into Russian hands, uh, and they're trying to take the capital and the second biggest city. Joining us now is Eric Prince. Former, uh, he's going to be joining us shortly. He's a former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, founder of the private military company uh, Blackwater. Knows all about weaponry, getting it in and out of tough situations. That's why it'll be great to have him when we finally get him. He also knows uh, what's effective and what's not. At this hour, we understand the second biggest city, Kharkiv, is being besieged in a ham-handed, uh, haphazard way. That means they're going for residences. And Kiev is now witnessing the after effects of having a convoy of the lasting three miles of uh, transportation vehicles, artillery vehicles, as well as airplanes and choppers going in to try to take that capital once and for all. Uh, the first plan was to take Kiev. The second was take Kiev, the port city of Odessa and Kharkiv, and uh, that didn't work. In fact, I talked to military analysts, and they said they couldn't believe how ridiculous it was for the Russians to think they're going to go through a country this size with from four different angles and take it quickly. He says you'd be lucky even with 150,000 troops when you have 150,000 really only a third are fighting. So if a third are fighting, how do you expect to take down a country that's hostile to your existence at 30 million. So here's a, a little of how's it going. The Ukrainian ambassador is speaking yesterday on uh, This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, here she is, cut one. First of all, we have to understand here that 
neither NATO nor any other false pretest or lies that Russian Federation government is spreading is the real reason why they attacked us. They attacked us because they always wanted to destroy us, because free, democratic and sovereign Ukraine is a threat to them. We are a peaceful country, we never attack them, but they cannot allow us to be independent and just to live our own lives. That's why they attacked us in 2014. That's why for the past eight years they've done everything to pressure us into, into this. And that's why now they started the war. Uh, and you know what? She's just seeing it. And there's so many people, uh, celebrities on down, who just said, give me a gun. I'm going back. And those, uh, they're coming back into the fight from out of country, from Poland and from Romania, where they could be getting uh, receiving exile status and maybe getting some uh, accommodation from their allies. Instead, they say, no, no, I'm going back to fight for my country. And that's what, uh, that's what Zelensky has said. He said, wherever you are, if you want to fight for us, come. We'll give you a gun. We'll let them fight. So they're not demanding anyone help. They just want weaponry to be able to fight for themselves. And I just think that's awesome. Uh, the ambassador goes on when she was talking about the peace talks that are taking place right now as we speak. I'm just scouring the wires to see if I have any report from the Belarus-Ukrainian border where these talks are taking place. I've only seen some video of both arriving at a big, long table. Let's listen to more from Ambassador Markova. Our president, from the beginning, uh, even, even before the war started, always focused, was focused on the diplomatic solution. And even after they started the war, he actually called for peace talks all the time. But he always said, we are ready for peace talks. We are not ready to surrender. So, of course, we are, we are ready for any peace talks that would stop the war and would get them out from our country. But it's too early to talk now. And the, the precondition, there weren't preconditions, but the demands of the Ukrainians are get out of the country, stop ceasefire immediately, and leave the country. I don't think Vladimir Putin's going to do either. But the other question is, what is Vladimir Putin thinking? Now, I know how it went. I remember in 2008, Shashkavili, who's a Western-oriented leader of Georgia, was being belligerent and uh, somewhat provocative with the Russian leader. So the Russian leader came in, and no one ever excuses his behavior. I get it, never will. But he took two of these disputed provinces. Now, I remember Condoleezza Rice saying this was avoidable. This is the first time this has happened, really since World War II. Uh, this is a huge issue. So in 2014, does the same thing with the two provinces in uh, the so-called disputed region, Donbass region, in the Ukraine. And he takes Crimea saying, well, we had it up until the 1950s, so we should just get it back. He's allowed to keep it. Some sanctions. He's able to weather the storm. We kick him out of the G7, kick him out of the G8, make it a G7. He's able to weather the storm. They poisoned some exiles overseas in the U.K. We sanctioned him. They were able to weather the storm. Then they threatened the U.K. They say you better, they threatened Ukraine, and they said you better uh, not pull away you better not apply for NATO. You better not be part of the European Union. So what they did in return, they rallied, got rid of their pro-Russian leader and the elected Poroshenko, who then lost an election to the man we're looking at now, Zelensky, the actor, comedian, great communicator, who wins an election overwhelmingly with six, about roughly 68% of the vote. And then when it was time to step up, and negotiate with Vladimir Putin. He says, no, I want you out of the country. He goes, no, well, we're going to keep those, uh, those um, Russian separatist regions. And he says, no, you're not going to do it. And we're going to keep, we'd like you to just to hand over, make it official, hand over Crimea. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. So they want to get rid of him. They want to decapitate the entire government, including the mayor, who happens to be 6'7 and a former heavyweight champion, 
Vitaly uh, Klitschko, and they're unable to do it. They don't want to get out of the car. Up until today, when I have not seen any video yet, scouring Twitter, but their second biggest city, they want to get out of the car. It's too dangerous. So the question is, and there's many, we have pledged to give aid, $400 million immediate aid. Now we're asking Congress to give $6 billion. I'm sure we'll give it. Through weaponry, through aid, immediately it's going to go into that region. But now we can't fly it in. Now we've got to get it covertly in. It's going to be a lot harder. We had all those weeks and months to get ready for it. As the Russians built up, we could have flown in these weaponry. But instead, we diverted weaponry that was going to Afghanistan, but we gave it to the Taliban, so we gave it to Ukraine instead. This is not the type of weaponry they actually needed. So now, as Ukraine is under siege in a major city, we have to be able to get over using land to get supplies to them. The question is, if one of our NATO allies has a transportation vehicle full of supplies, a truck, and gets blown up, is that an adequate Article 5 violation? Senator Mark Warner, cut for I still worry about, for example, one of the things we talked about off air, if Putin launches his full cyber capabilities, shuts down the power in Ukraine, does that somehow shut down the power in eastern Poland as well? Because once you let malware out, could that shut off police hospitals? How do you feel about this idea that Article 5 could be uh, be invoked on a cyber attack? Cyber attack is, again, one of those areas where we've had so-called strategic ambiguity. But if you suddenly see American troops... Uh, get hurt because they've, the power's been shut off or Polish citizens die because the hospitals go down, you're very ap- rapidly approaching what I think is an Article 5 violation. Got to get clear on that, guys. Got to get clear on it because uh, they pride themselves on a cyber attack. And you just heard Jonathan Moore, previous hour, a China expert, trying to see how we respond to a cyber attack because we know they're capable of doing it. Uh, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We're following all the events overseas. They're not waiting for nighttime to attack. They are once again trying to take the second biggest city. And we're seeing if the Ukrainians can continue to astound and confound Russia and astound us by holding out and winning this fight or at least holding their own. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The sanctions are great. I support them 100%. But they take months and years to have effect. It's really about winning the war on the ground. We need to support the Ukrainians who are fighting. And three, if he succeeds in his ultimate objective, which is regime change, and force Zelensky out of power, arrest him, or kill him, we need to continue to support the resistance I'm convinced, Chuck, there is no way that Ukrainians will submit right. to some kind of puppet regime from, from Russia. That it, is not going to happen. But to unravel that could right. take a long time. Former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, weighing in. I don't know why Vladimir Putin had had that explained to him, but it seems that is the case. He thought he could maybe convince he, there were 40 million people forced to vote for a guy that was elected with 68 percent of the vote. Um, in Zelensky. Joining us now is Eric Prince, former U.S. Navy SEAL, founder of the private uh, group Blackwater and uh, Academy. Uh, uh, right now joins us. Eric, welcome. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good. Eric, first off, are you surprised on how slow it is going initially for the Russians? Yes, I think it's certainly been a, uh, a major uh, fail on their part. Certainly not what they were expecting. But, you know, when they when they plan to have four axes of advance, that's four lines of logistics that's uh, 
it's really spreading uh, the the offensive punch probably a bit too widely. And I think they uh, they expected a cakewalk, cakewalk, and uh, I think they've gotten a, a certain kind of uh, bad sandwich instead. Well, uh, number one, it was explained to me too by somebody who also has years in the battlefield that you can't leave weaponry on in the middle of winter on the enemy, you know, on the border for five months with guys with no accommodation expect the morale to be high and the stuff to work. Is that a possibility? Um, certainly a possibility. I think the difference is a wide cross-section of people in the, in the Russian army. You have, you know, conscripts, which are serving for less than two years, very low motivation, low training, a very, very abusive uh, structure, and you have a few um, – uh, longer-term contracted professionals that they've depended on, but um, either force has neither made uh, real headway. You know, they, they did the, the air assault into the Antonov airfield on the western side of Kiev, thinking they would uh, be able to reinforce and four more troops in and try to seize the capital. They did not expect the, the free Ukrainians to, to rise, even in the Russian-speaking areas. I figured Putin was going to go in but I, I figured uh, – I told my friends he was going to stay east of the Dnieper River. Uh, but Where's I'm really that? shocked that they're Where's trying that? to take uh, – What river is that? Again. What river is the that? Dne- Dnieper. It's oh. the river that runs right through downtown Kiev. Okay. Kiev is kind of straddling both sides. I figured he was going to take the eastern, the Russian-speaking side of the country. But um, to try to take the capital, uh, clearly a mistake. And you know, it, it's also showing that urban warfare – very much evens the playing field, um, and, and it kind of negates some of the apparent technological advances. So I, I'm, it's especially frustrating because I offered back in December already a, a simple plan based on what was done in the past that would have prevented the Russians from invading. You know, when, when the Brits were up against it fighting the Nazis in 1940, uh, Franklin Roosevelt authorized Lend-Lease, which was providing – older U.S. equipment to allies. And this year, the U.S. Air Force is already retiring 200 combat aircraft, including F-15s, F-16s, and A-10s. And if the U.S. had transferred any number of those to the Ukrainians, painted them Ukrainian markings, and we could have flown them with contract pilots or with um, uh, with Ukrainian pilots, um, the, the air power they would have they would have ensured would have prevented the Russians from really crossing the border effectively in any way, shape, or form. And what was the answer? Did you propose that to this administration? Yes. It was proposed directly to the Biden NSC and met with a resounding, with a resounding, we're not interested. Right. And now we're trying to rush weaponry in there. Even Germany is. And now we have to do it over land. Eric Prince, how hard is that, if at all, if you think it's a big deal, that we have to go through Poland, Romania, or, or somewhere else? The sad thing is, if this grinds into a, a long-running insurgency, like the Russians fought in Grozny in Chechnya, um, there's a lot of people going to die, a lot of people going to suffer, and it will get ugly. And, and and when you get to partisan warfare inside of cities, there's going to be a lot of civilian casualties and just an, an enormous amount of destruction. And it was all preventable. And that's the frustration that the National Command Authority in America lacks any kind of imagination, any kind of uh, ability to come up with a different plan or accept a different plan Mm -hmm. for all their talk of diversity, they seem to only think within their beltway bubble. And that's extremely dangerous because, I mean, heck, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that the Germans have come around and are at least going to help the Ukrainians. Even the Swiss, 
are sanctioning the Russians now. The Swiss haven't come off the sidelines in over the 500 years. They didn't even sanction Hitler, but yet they're sanctioning the Russians. So there's certainly is stimulated a real antibody response uh, from the Europeans and from the international community. Um, But in the meantime, um, there's terrain that has to be defended, and uh, and I'm sure the Ukrainians are not willing to yield um, any one you know any one square kilometer. Uh, to the Russians on this one. So uh, wars are decided by, by who holds that ground. And, um, you know, the the Russians were also limited. You see most of those destroyed tanks are all running on roads. And uh, and there's a term in Russian called the, the Great uh, Rasputitsa, which is the Great Flush. And, of course, Ukraine has enormous amounts of farmland. And what is, what is farmland? It's mud. Uh, it's frozen now. But as, it, as you come towards spring, they're going to be even more confined to the roads, really, until until July. Right. And so that will make it easier for the Ukrainians to defend those lines of um, of, of attack, because the the Russians are not going to be able to get off road and try to transit through the mud. Real quick, Eric, it, you know, it's, it's the people of Berlin, of now today Paris, of Saint Petersburg, forty different cities in America. We have less than a minute that have stood up and made their leaders act, not the military experts. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I was surprised in Berlin. They expected 20,000 people over the weekend to show up and protest, and a half a million people did. So, yeah, they, they have definitely uh, woken up, and I guess that is still the, the, the power of, uh, of people in a democracy that you can make your voice heard if you, uh, if you yell and loud, you know, stamp your feet loud enough. Erica, they didn't listen to Afghanistan, and we face humiliation. Uh, you tried to help them uh, in uh, Ukraine, and now we are uh, sitting on the sidelines scrambling to get involved. Uh, someday they'll listen. Thank you so much. Maybe someday, Brian. Thank you. Yep. Uh, I will be listening. When we come back, Brett Baer joins us. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show, a very important day. We're following all the developments overseas. It's not slowing down. In fact, it is heating up. Don't move. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. He's not been in the Kremlin for the most part. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He doesn't look very powerful. And this is going to jeopardize his ability to stay in power. That word rational actor is a very elastic, right? He's out at his compound doesn't come into town very much, and under COVID, he's been more isolated. He's increasingly unhinged in the way that he talks about the regime. Well, I met with him many times, uh, and uh, this is a different Putin. He seems uh, erratic. There is uh, an ever-deepening delusional rendering of history. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. There's not one political person on that montage of people describing Vladimir Putin. There was no uh, there was no bloviating. There was no advertising. That's just what their personal opinion is of people that have dealt with him before in the past. And then you factor in Marco Rubio's tweet where he says, I can't tell you everything, but this is not the same Vladimir Putin from five years ago. Brett Baer uh, joins us now. He's been all over the channel. As you know, chief political anchor, when things like this happen, uh, Brett cannot uh, be allowed to sleep. Uh, Brett, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. I know. It's unbelievable the series of events that have taken place. Uh, and I just want to get your take on people like Condoleezza Rice saying this is not the same guy. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of people saying that. You just had uh, the French President Macron 
uh, and who had just met with him in person, say something similar, that he's dark and ominous and brooding and uh, stuck on the you know, pre-Soviet Union map uh, for Russia. And I had the U.K. ambassador to the U.S. on the show this weekend. Uh, she has talked to people very close to Putin who say roughly the same thing, according to her. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I think it means dangerous things. Uh, it, it means that the 2014 playbook for Crimea is not the playbook that we're looking at now. And we could be looking at a lot of attacks that look more like Grozny or Syria, where it's very civilian targeted and uh, could get very, very ugly in uh, the next day or so. Are you getting the sense that right now Kharkiv uh, is getting ugly because they're, they're shelling it again? Uh, but this time it seems to be with, without any precision, just uh, but without, without, with uh, increased frequency? Yeah, I mean, we've seen videos uh, that have surfaced that are – and the other thing to be careful of is there's other things on the internet that are just people putting out stuff, and you don't know where it's from. You know, if it's if it's not a trusted you know source that you know, just be skeptical of it because people can say all kinds of things, and there's a lot of stuff flying flying out there. But the people that you trust that are there who are shooting video, yeah, I mean, it looks like um, – you know, not carpet bombing, but definite indiscriminate use of uh, missiles and, and fire and shelling. So, uh, Brett, what do you know about the talks? I haven't seen anything come out of those talks yet between they're taking place in the Belarus Ukrainian border between Ukraine and uh, Russian officials. So apparently they just wrapped up a short time ago and both have gone back to their capitals with uh, to for consultations, they said and a promise to do talks again. What that means, I don't know. The Ukrainians want a full withdrawal of military, including from the Donbass, which is the separatist area in the east. And we don't have a readout of what exactly Russia has demanded. But they say they're going to talk again, so I guess that that is a silver lining. I saw a report by Jennifer Griffin that Belarus is not making moves and maneuvers and assembling in a way that looks like they're going to get involved. Uh, do you believe that they – is that where we're going with? Because we woke up today thinking that they were – they're in, which to me would show a, de- a degree of panic. Yeah. I, I think that was coming from Russian sources saying that Belarus had signed on, uh, but maybe Belarus didn't get that message. Uh, I think, you know, even if uh, they were involved, they have a fairly small military. It's about 20,000 that they were uh, able to bring in. Still significant to have a country support Russia because other previous allies have backed out. They've uh, given Putin the Heisman Award and uh, pushed him away. And I think that uh, this is an indication that maybe Belarus is uh, getting cold feet on that promise. So I understand there's three uh, cities uh, that have fallen, uh, Nikolavia, Vika, uh, in that area, and two others. There's smaller cities, one of which is is a port city uh, in and around the Donbass region. Any significance to that except for the fact that there really has been no cities taken to this point? Yeah, I think that that's the message uh, from U.S. and British intelligence is that this is not going how Putin dreamed it up or planned it. Um, this is day five heading into day six. 
and no major city is completely under control. Uh, that's a big deal. That's a big credit to Ukrainian defense uh, officials and, and soldiers on the ground. But it's important to realize that, you know, it, it's day five, heading to day six, and a lot can happen. There's a lot more military might that comes behind that if Putin puts all in on the table. So, you know, everyone's encouraged. We just had Eric Prince on. He said he cannot believe Switzerland didn't even didn't even sanction Hitler. They are now a part of this, sanctioning the uh, the banks and investments in their country. We know that Germany has stepped up in a way I didn't think was imaginable in this day and age, sending uh, uh, lethal weapons, allowing others to send through their country, and then pledging to spend 2% of their budget on defense, as well as uh, pivot to nuclear energy, revisit nuclear energy, which is pretty astounding. But before getting too ahead, I was struck by on the SWIFT, on the sanctions on the SWIFT banking system – I thought it was noteworthy that Andrea Mitchell said this about the actual sanctions. Cut 20. What they did on SWIFT, there's still big holes at Swiss cheese, really, on SWIFT, because first they have to wait for the Belgian leaders, the board of directors, to approve it next week. They've got a big cutout for any banks that are involved in energy transactions. So that's to protect Germany and Italy and others. And which banks are those? They could be some of the worst oligarch-controlled banks. So let's wait to see exactly how it's implemented. And then Danielle Pletka did some research herself. She's senior fellow at AEI, Cut 21. The fact that the sanctions have all of these loopholes is a big problem. What are we doing on the Russian Central Bank? What are we going to supply to the Ukrainians in order to support them? How are we going to backfill Poland and others that are depleting their own defensive stocks in order to support the Ukrainians? None of those questions have been answered. So... Implementation is going to be key. I think we should all look at that, correct? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're going to exclude banks from energy deals, uh, that's most of the banks. Um, You know, somebody said this affects 80% of the banks. Well, Putin controls 100% of the banks. And all you need is is one way uh, for money to come in and out. So, I, you have uh, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying he's an advocate for full pull off of SWIFT, and he is pushing that uh, today. It, it is interesting to watch the Biden administration in this environment. Remember, the president came out and said, uh, no, this, these sanctions are better than SWIFT, and we're not going to do SWIFT right now. It's on the table at that press conference. And then within 24 hours, the Europeans said, we are doing it in part because they had a phone call, a conference call with Zelensky, who said, this may be the last time you hear from me alive. We're fighting for European values and dying for them. And that moved the needle with the European leaders. But they started leading on not only sanctioning Putin directly, but doing the swift moves, as many holes as, as are in them, but doing it. And that had the Biden administration scrambling uh, to match up within 24 hours, to the point where there's not a Federal Reserve chair officially, because Jerome Powell's uh, time ended February 5th. So they had, the Fed had to elect a, a chair pro tem, a temporary chair, so they could sign the documents and do the swift maneuvers. So they elected Jerome Powell. He actually voted for himself, which is very bizarre. But it all happened within 24 hours because the Biden administration was behind the Europeans on what they were doing. It's amazing, Brett. That's an important thing to point out. In the long run, I think it's great that Europe understands this is their safety and security in the long run, but it's also noteworthy that we're not leading. I mean, 
we're not leading. I mean, we're not. Uh, this is this is not our initiative. The story used to be America wants to do this, but he can't get our allies. Now our allies saying we're doing this, and America's playing catch up. I mean, if if you saw that Joe Biden was calling Switzerland to get involved and berating Germany to get involved, I'm like, okay, that's pretty much par for the course. We can't get them to spend on their own defense. They obviously set up secure. They already set up uh, deals with energy, knowing that eventually. The Russians could hold it over their head. They did it anyway. But this time they, they got their wake-up call from the people under fire because I think they realized it could be them next. Yeah, and they realize how unstable or unpredictable, at least, Putin is. And so you have to give the Biden administration credit for dealing with allies and, and talking to yes. them and getting them all you know, together. I mean, that in and of itself is a big deal. But when it comes to the actual moves and pressing for the moves, it seems like they're 24 hours, 48 hours behind. And so when critics say leading from behind, like the, in Libya and other engagements, um, this kind of fits this bill, at least right now. Right. And just getting those weapons in is going to be risky. But we had a chance to get them in while the Russians were building up and we chose not to. The Javelins and others, the way I understand it, and I could be corrected, that most of the Javelin missiles and the anti uh, and these anti-tank uh, operatives or the shoulder fire missiles, they came during the bunch, the Trump era. That the smaller arms came during the, the Biden era and many of them were repurposed from Afghanistan because the Taliban took the country. Yes, it's true eventually. But remember, President Trump wanted to hold back uh, weapons and aid to Ukraine in exchange for allegedly uh, information about what Biden was doing and the talks that were going on. That's the whole impeachment thing that played out. But eventually the weapons get there uh, and eventually that process moves forward after a little delay in the in the Trump beginning of the Trump era. A hundred percent. That was one of um it's hard to get you. Sometimes you get your impeachments uh, confused, but I do remember <laughs> yeah, that. They're, yeah. They're all over uh, but then he ended up, you realize, uh, ironically, that day that he got a call from Nancy Pelosi that they're going to move on impeachment hearings. He met with Zelensky and they hit it off at the U.N. in New York City. He was making great progress. And then we focused domestically again. And then we know what happened. He said he was doing they were doing Vladimir Putin's uh, dirty work. Uh, and that's where they continue the Russian narrative that we're all we had to live through for the past four years. We're down. Trump spoke on Saturday and for the first time in a long time, didn't bring up 2020. Now, Brett, on your coverage tonight, barring any Titanic news from the battlefield, how are you going to break up your show? Are you going to talk about the State of the Union address? Are you going to talk about President Biden's 37 percent approval rating? Uh, yeah. Listen, it's a big big hurdle for this president as he gets ready for this speech. First of all, the world's attention is someplace else. But it's a um, a skeptical country that, you know, 30 percent of independents have approval of Biden. And, you know, the congressional physician just lifts the mask mandate for a Capitol Hill uh, today, you know, or yesterday, actually, it was the official word, but it's right before the State of the Union. I mean, the science is is impeccable in its timing uh, for for announcements. So I think there's a, a lot of hurdles that he has to get over, and um, I I know he wants to be optimistic, but in reality, uh, there are a lot of people who are thinking that the country's on the right, wrong track. Twenty nine percent they say that it's on the right track. 
that's not a good number heading into an election year. And I just can't get over this math. When the president's on record saying, I'm doing everything I can to ease the pain of the American people because of inflation and energy prices, knowing he's not. He's not drilling on land. He's not pledging to do the things that the markets would affect that would affect the price of oil. Instead, Jen Psaki came out and said it's time to get off fossil fuels. That's not going to be the message that's going to resonate with people outside political circles that aren't a member of the squad. Yeah, that soundbite is really something. If you listen to it, she's saying that, yes, the president agrees that the country needs to get off reliance on foreign oil. But domestic production, she says, is not the way to do it. Now, I get it. That is the wish in an ideological world when you're thinking green and climate change that you're going to force the issue. And then suddenly technology is going to take us to a place where, you know, windmills and batteries and solar and everything else is going to take over the energy. But we're not there yet. You know, as a country, we're not there. And until you get there, we have very clean natural gas and other elements that are much better how we used to do it. Uh, that could change the dynamic in the big picture. So I think this administration is really vulnerable on that in this moment. You know, vulnerable on crime, vulnerable mm-hmm. on immigration, vulnerable on inflation overall. But on energy, there's just not a good answer uh, for that. I'm going to start a movement. I don't know if you want to be a part of it to make every American buy a Tesla. So this way uh, they could make great progress, look cool and not use gas. Can you join me in that mission? <laughs> Yeah, the only problem is is that the emissions, you got to get the electricity from somewhere. Right. So where's it coming from? And um, so all this stuff about getting to electric, we don't have the stuff in place yet uh, to be able to get a, a car across country electric. True. And we don't have $100,000. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Brett, uh, uh, what a great fundraiser. Uh, it was fantastic over in Naples, yeah, Florida. Thank you so much. Yeah it, yeah, it was so much fun. You did it. such an incredible job. First class. Everyone had a great time, including my wife and my friends, my neighbors, who just love being there. Brett, how much did you raise, and can people still contribute? Yeah, you can go to allstarpanelevent.com if you want to donate to Children's National. It's a great cause that helps kids around the world. Uh, but we raised a record $2.3 million, and that's really unbelievable. We We started this thing. Seven years ago, I think we did 300,000 the first year and 600,000, then we did 1.2. We had a COVID year where we did it all virtual. We still raised a lot of money, but this year was really something. So thank you to you and everybody who took part. It was um, a big event. Absolutely. Brett, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We've been watching you all day, especially tonight on Special Report. Brett Baer, thank you. We'll see you. Back in a moment. Listen and pick up on some things you didn't know before. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We need to have more agility and speed to put pressure to really for him to go back to the table and stop this insanity. It's insanity. A lot of people are going to die He's really got away with too much, and he understands that West is weakened right now. And like in this martial sports, you take advantage of, of your weak opponent. So we need mm-hmm. to get stronger, and we need to be quicker and help Ukraine to win this war, because they fight fighting not just for them, but for all of us. Absolutely. So get this, too. This just came in. 
uh, there's video now of President Zelensky signing an application, posing for photos, an application to join the European Union. It's got 27 nations. NATO's got 30. You know he wants to be in that. Also, the U.S. and the, the Russian and Ukrainian officials have uh, concluded their talks. We look forward to seeing what happened there. The fighting has not slowed down in Kiev, has not slowed down in the second major city. And they do know that Russians have control of three cities for now uh, in as well as the Donbass region, but there's fighting still raging there. Uh, the city's still going on three cities uh, inside the Ukraine. So we'll follow all of that as it continues to unfold. And that was Victoria Sparks. She's a congresswoman from Indiana of Ukrainian birth, and she wants more from this administration. Uh, the rest of the world is acting. Even Switzerland has broken their, their vow of neutrality and said, we are sanctioning the banks. So many banks are in Switzerland. Many Russian oligarchs have accounts in Switzerland. Look out. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.